Grace Point. How you doing? You all sound great today. So can we thank the band for leading us so well and you for, yeah, goodness. It's like the pre-spring day just brought it out. It's fantastic. Um, couple things. I missed you all last week. Uh, we were in Washington, D.C. doing some work with the One campaign. Oh, our, yeah, youth, uh, youth can go downstairs. There's a, there's a reason. They have a class. So if you're 6th to 12th grade, you can go downstairs. Um, we were in D.C. doing some work with the One campaign, and it was a really fortunate uh, day for me to be not speaking is because I didn't have a voice. I'd had some allergy stuff going on. I'm still fighting it a little bit. But I'm feeling a lot better and glad to be here. Two announcements I want to make real quick about what's coming up at Grace Point. The first is that on March 15th, which is two weeks from today, um, how many of you have heard of the Human Rights Campaign? Yeah, okay. So uh, we've been in contact, they're gonna be in Nashville, and they said, hey, could we come to the gatherings that week and our president um, address the community for five minutes or so just about the work of HRC? And we did some uh, letter writing and some things with them online recently, and they just want to say thanks and let us know how we can partner with them to do more work on behalf of our LGBTQ uh, plus brothers and sisters. So they'll be here that day. We're also starting a new series on that day um, about reclaiming the language of faith that has in so many ways been taken away from us as folks who have made a journey, a theological journey. And then I want to tell you about Easter. So Easter's coming up on April the 12th. Who's excited? Well, you got to get there because it's our Super Bowl. Like, it's the day. Um, and so one of the interesting things that's happened is that this, this gathering is regularly full. Uh, this morning at our 9 o'clock gathering, Nathaniel said that we had as many seats out and filled as we used to have on Sunday mornings when we first came to Clementine. So we are sort of dealing with, yeah, that's, that's good news. So we've been trying to figure out, like, on Easter, if, if new people came to this gathering, where would we put them? Um, we, we don't know. So on Easter, we're going to do three gatherings so that we can accommodate everybody who wants to be a part of one. We'll do 9, 10, 30, and 12 on Easter Sunday. So if you're a brunch person, you know, come early. Or if you're a dinner person, come late. But we'll have three opportunities, and we would love for you to use this as an opportunity to invite friends and folks you know who need a community like Grace Point. Because I believe that there's a deep need for a community like Grace Point where people are seen and loved, and um, I, I'm sure you know this, there's a lot of trauma that religious institutions create in the world. Um, I met somebody at the, at the first gathering who was like, I haven't been to church in three years, and this was not what I expected, uh, in a good way, <laughs> right? So um, be thinking about what gathering you'd like to come to, be thinking about who you'd invite to come be a part of that. This is good news, correct? Awesome, yeah. So uh, we are today continuing a series. We have two more weeks of this rhythm series, and we've been talking about spiritual practices, specifically that for a lot of us who grew up in a specific conservative tradition, there were so many things we were given to do that would sort of enhance our spirituality. And when we've made this sort of movement away from that into a more progressive space, we, we don't know what to do with them. I, I experienced that. I've talked to lots of people who experienced that. So like, what do you do with the Bible? What do you do with prayer? We've talked about those. Today I want to talk about one that I only recently have come to see as a spiritual practice. Uh, that's forgiveness. I typically have thought of forgiveness as just something I should do to be a good person, right? I need to forgive them, and it's sort of these little one-off things. But I actually have come to see forgiveness as being a, a, a spiritual practice that takes repetition and regular engagement in order to like, transform us. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I, I think on the front end I'll say this. I think forgiveness has the potential to transform not only the forgiven but also the forgiver. Uh, it, it is not just a one-way deal. So when you and I forgive someone, something hopefully happens for them, um, but something definitely happens for us. And that thing that happens for us 
as it moves us along the journey of transformation. So that's where we're going to be today. I want to read a text from Matthew chapter 5. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is where Jesus is getting into sort of what are known as the antitheses, but it really isn't an antithesis. He's not saying that, what he's not saying is, hey, the way we've always seen the law is the law is bad, and I'm going to give you a better interpretation. He's doing something else. Notice, if uh, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. How many of you agree with that? Y'all, we need more hands. That, I do not feel safe. I need to know that everybody in this room is like, yeah, I'm pretty square on that one. Okay, good. No killing of anybody. No murder. Uh, of course, that echoes back to the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, no murder, no killing. So you've heard it said, don't do this. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. That's all I got for you. Have a great week. Uh, <laughs> watch out for fiery hell. That's a, that's a thing. Uh, so what, what is Jesus doing here? First, I, I don't think Jesus is minimizing the law. What he's not saying is, you've heard it said don't murder, but psh, no. What he's doing is he's inviting us into a deeper understanding. He's saying that we've been operating on this, well, I didn't murder anybody, so I must be okay. And he's saying, no, 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 go beneath the surface because there are things that contribute to the murder thing <laughs> that begin below the surface. I, I'm sure some people do. I don't think most people wake up one day and they're like, checklist for the day, pick up dry cleaning, <clears throat> take cat to the vet, murder. Like, I don't think that's how people do it, right? But I think what happens is slowly over time, all this stuff that we don't deal with, this anger, um, begins to build and build and build. And I think this is why Jesus uses the phrase hell here. So the word hell in the original Greek language is the word Gehenna. How many of you have heard this before? And it means like um, Valley of Hinnom. It's named after a person. Um, and it's an actual geographical location. So when somebody's like, do you believe in a literal hell? Like, here's a picture. That's where it's located. Let's zoom in. Zoom in on in. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> if you could see the picture, I mean, it looks like hell would be a lovely place to take a walk. Like, honestly, today, it, it's not what it was then. In Jesus' day, so to back way up, in the Hebrew Scriptures, this valley of Hinnom became known as a place where the, some of the Jewish kings would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. So they would take their child in order to get on this god's good side, and they would offer their child as a sacrifice in this valley. And that was so frowned upon... That's not even strong enough language. That was so terrible that this place became assigned sort of as a, as a curse. Like nobody would want to go because bad things happen in the Valley of Hinnom. In Jesus' day, it had turned into a garbage dump. Anybody spend a lot of time around garbage dumps? No, right? Like we don't want to. What happens? All the waste goes there. And then to make more space, they've got to burn it. Right? So in Jesus' day, when he talks about a fiery hell, nobody would be thinking about an afterlife scenario deep somewhere in the earth's crust with a guy in a red jumpsuit with horns and a, a manicured goatee and a pitchfork. Like, that's not where they would have gone. They would have flashed to the actual location that they had known as being a place. Oh, we got it. See, this look, doesn't look scary at all. Um, but this is hell. That's, that's what's known as hell right there. You've seen it. Um, and it became a place of waste, a place of where garbage was 
burned down. So of course, there was fire always going. You'd have dogs in there fighting over scraps. It wasn't a place to take a family stroll. And I think Jesus uses this language not to say to us, if you don't do something else when you die, you're going to go to some cosmic version of this. But I think he's taking it seriously and saying, there, when we waste our lives, when we enter into destructive behaviors, it creates this context. You do not have to die to go to hell. People live in hell right here, right now. And some of the people who have the most hellish existence are people who have anger that is unresolved. And they carry that around in them, locked up in them. Has anybody ever yelled at somebody and you were really mad at somebody else? Anybody done that? And while you're doing it, you're like, this is so not about them, but I'm already in this far into it now, so I just have to keep going. Right? Like, I'll, I'm going to make the apology last, it'll be later, but right now I'm just getting off some steam, right? Like, Jesus is talking about anger, and he's talking about it in such strong terms because th that's where everything else comes from. Murder comes and it begins in some sort of anger. And then Jesus, he starts talking about language, you fool, idiot. And he's talking about the way we end up dehumanizing people. We get angry, and the next step is to dehumanize. And I wish I could say that this is one of those conservative issues that we progressives have migrated and left behind, but we've not. We really haven't. We still use the same language. We still often uh, want the same kind of justice. The, the problem is that both sides end up wanting retributive justice, which means we just want people to pay. Whereas the vision of the kingdom of God, the vision of Jesus and the, scripture, and the writers of scripture is a vision of restorative justice, where if people are healed and relationships are mended and things are put back together again. What we have a bigger vision than just making people pay. But what often happens is we dehumanize. We use our language to cut down. I'm, so, I'm guilty of this. I think many of us are guilty of this. Even when we're right and feel justified, we use our language as a way of just sort of cutting down at somebody's humanity. And when you dehumanize somebody, you can excuse a lot. Right? I mean, this is what we've, we've seen in our own country, that when you begin to dehumanize groups of people, a lot of things that normally would be just completely off limits suddenly become possible. Right? Suddenly you're putting kids in cages. Right? Suddenly you're, you're persecuting a group of people for their religious beliefs or their country of origin. Dehumanization can go a long way to making people expendable. And what often happens after dehumanization, of course, hate comes with it. And we all end up getting at a point of just pure contempt. And contempt is when you hate somebody so much you just don't care. They cease to exist to you. And somebody's hating someone is better than having contempt for them because at least there's some, still, some heart there. <clears throat> and so I think what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up this, what he's going to say next, in such strong terms to say, if we don't learn how to relate better to each other, if we don't deal with our anger, if we don't stop using our words to dehumanize each other, we are headed down a really perilous path. This was true in his day, right? Much of what Jesus is warning about happened. It's in our past. It was in their future when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, when the, <clears throat> the Jews revolted against Rome and they were crushed. Much of Jesus' teaching is a warning about the futility of violence, right? And so Jesus then, he's saying in these big dramatic terms, and notice what he says next. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. I read a commentary on this that said that it's almost a comical image because imagine you're carrying a goat up to the altar and you realize, oh no, Marv is angry at me like Marv does. 
right, and you've got a goat, what do you do with it? You sit it down, and you go, is the goat going to wait? How many of you ever trained goats to just stay? If so, please enter that goat in a competition of some sort, because that's not typically what you do. If you're bringing pigeons to offer and you set them down, what are they going to do? They're going to fly away. You're, essentially, your offering is going to be gone. But Jesus is actually saying, more important than making some sort of spectacle for God, it would be better for you to mend, if you can, a broken relationship. That it's actually that important. Bail on that, the religious moment and go do the human moment. Right? And somebody said to me recently, like, sounds like you're a humanist. Like, I think God's a humanist. God seems to really value human beings. And God values the relationship between human beings. And when those relationships are disjointed, it can create a world, literally a world of hurt for lots and lots and lots of people. And so I want to let, let's just let that stew for just a second, Jesus' words. And I'm going to invite Chris Christian up. Oh, you're right there. You switched seats on me. Everybody, this is Chris Christian. Will you welcome him this morning? Does this work? Planned it. Did, didn't plan it. Let me sit down. There you go. There we go. We're yeah, the we're same. on the same, same page right. now. Um, so I've known Chris since I started at Grace Point last around almost a year ago. And uh, really enjoyed getting to know him and just find him to be one of the most joyful, energetic human beings I've ever known. Do you get that all the time? Kind of. Yeah, like even in your Instagram photos, it's like you're moving. Like I don't know how you do it. Like you just have so much joy and energy. But as I sort of sat down and got to talk to Chris, what I learned was is that the joy he has in his life uh, was hard won. It didn't come easy. And so uh, he came to me in the, in the last year and said, I've got a few things I'd like to talk about with my story if that would ever fit into something you're doing at Grace Point. And so he's here today, and we're going to talk a little bit about forgiveness together. So, Chris, um, could you just begin by giving everybody just sort of a glimpse of what growing up was like for you? Yeah, good morning, everybody. Is this working? All right, good morning. Good to see everybody. It's good to be seen as well. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy with this community and the support and love I feel uh, is definitely the complete opposite of what my upbringing was. Uh, back in Memphis, it was, it was challenging. You know, imagine sleeping on a floor at night because you didn't know if a bullet would come through the window. Imagine going to the refrigerator and opening it and there being nothing but, let's, let's guess, lettuce, mayo, and hot sauce. You can't make a meal with that, right? Well, maybe you can nowadays. But... <laughs> But this was my reality. This was my siblings' reality. There are nine of us. I have five brothers, three sisters. Uh, my mom had two, and she met my dad and had six more, me and six more like me, which starts the problem. Cause so are you the oldest well, there's, in that group? There's two older than me, and then she met my dad and had myself <laughs> and six more like me. So, <laughs> so that's where the issue comes in, really. But, um, but it, was, it was definitely a struggle. You know, we never knew what our next day was going to look like. Uh, we never knew where our next meal was going to come from. Uh, in our housing situation, we bounced from place to place to place, whether it was a rooming house where you had a house with four bedrooms and four families, and each person, each family got a room, or sleeping at Salvation Army that could hold, you know, a mom and nine children, um, or sleeping outside. You know, it was... It was it was pretty rough growing up back there. And your mom, specifically with your mom, there were some issues that developed around her mental health. Yeah, so my mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is very, very challenging. With, with mental illness, you never know, especially schizophrenia or anything like bipolar disorder, you never know what's gonna happen. 
So one day she'd wake up, she'd cook breakfast, she'd hug you, and she'd be loving. And the next morning she'd walk out and she'd slap you and say, that's because you're going to tick me off later. So you just never knew what you were going to get in that type of situation. So uh, my experience of that is it, it caused me to really distort what love was and to distort what my role was in the family dynamic. So I found myself taking on much of the responsibility for cooking, cleaning, changing diapers, uh, picking up cans off the street just to take them to the junkyard for money for food. Um, I found myself getting creative. We didn't, so we didn't have a lot of toys or things like that. So we would literally take anything in the house to turn into a toy, right? So the hot sauce bottle, the shampoo, all of those things became toys for us and we would play with them as if they were Power Rangers or wrestling figures or whatever. Um, but her mental illness, it robbed her of a lot of joy and it robbed us of a lot of joy. Uh, something I didn't mention in the last service is that she also went to jail a lot. So she would get into fights with people right in front of us, whether she shot them or stabbed them or she set someone on fire right in front of us before. Oh and you know, when she went to jail, we had to figure out what was next. Where are we gonna go? Where are we gonna sleep? What are we gonna eat? How do we stay out of state custody? Um, so it was, it was, it was, a roller coaster for sure. Yeah, and I know you, you mentioned in the last gathering that when you came out, what was that experience like with her? My mom and I had a lot of screaming matches. We had a lot of, I, I, I was very obedient to, you know, work, 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 pay for everything, take care of everybody except for myself. Uh, when I was around 17, I was working three jobs. Uh, I was in 12th grade, that's when my daughter was born as well. I was a 12th grade student with a newborn baby and working at Kroger, Burger King, and the movie theater just to keep lights on, just to keep water going, just to keep you know, food on the table. And I started to finally get rebellious and I, I argued back with my mom. It was loud screaming matches. It was throwing the kitchen sink at each other, trying to defend our points. And um, you know, she started to, I just realized that it wasn't working. Nothing was working. I felt empty. I, I hated myself when I was at, when, at that age. I didn't know who I was or what I was doing. Yeah, so it wasn't just the issues with her. You began to develop your own interior struggles. Yeah, well, it, it's the wounding messages. And I love that we talk about things like the Enneagram and all the geeky stuff we love here. Um, but as a two, the wounding childhood message of a two on the Enneagram is you can't have your own needs. You can't express when you have a need. Your feelings are invalid. So and you're a helper. You're always taking care of everyone. You're making sure everyone is fed. You're making sure everyone has what they need, but you end up abandoning yourself as well in the process of you don't have a healthy outlook on life. And that was my experience. I found myself starting to build up resentment and anger and frustration and bitterness. And it, it just did not resonate into love at all. So when were you able to enter into the forgiveness journey with your mom? The forgiveness journey with mom was, uh, I think probably around 26, I was around 26 years old. And I just got to a point where I said, this is not effective. It's not working. Screaming back and forth at each other is just not working. She's got a powerful energy. I had a powerful energy. Uh, it, it was ineffective and I wanted something different. So you want something you never had, you have to do something you never done, right? I became a podcast junkie. I became a psychology junkie. I started reading and praying and listening to anything I could to help me to uh, better relate to my mom. And I learned about boundaries. Oh my God. <laughs> you wanna talk about some transformative work? 
Boundaries are absolutely incredible spiritual gifts that help us to develop the tools and the resources to, to navigate situations, not only by being firm in where we are, but doing it in a kind and loving way as well. Uh, so the boundaries I learned taught me that I was not responsible for taking everyone else. I was actually taken on a parent role when I should have been a child. Yeah. And it was not my responsibility to make everyone else feel good, to make sure everyone else was taken care of. So that really started the work. So my relationship with my mom, when she would call me and she want to go off and cuss and scream and do all of that, I would make her angry because <laughs> I said, hey, mom, I love you so much that I'm going to hop off the phone and give you the space <laughs> to feel what you're feeling. And I'm going to step back. And I started parenting myself in a way that she wasn't equipped with the tools to do. Um, so it took years of doing that, her being angry, me being angry, frustrated, having to constantly go internal. And around, I would say, about three years ago, about three years ago, it finally resonated. She finally got to the point where even with her sickness, even with schizophrenia, she got to the point where she said, you know what, I know I can't call him and make him responsible for my bills, because I was paying everybody's bills. <laughs> She said, I can't make him responsible for my happiness. I can't, make, I can't blame him for my failures. And she got to the point where we actually, out of all nine of her children, she and I were the only two. We built a mother-son relationship. Oh, and so it was powerful. And what did you guys do as you were building? Like, you did some fun stuff together. Oh, your... God, yeah. So, like, once we, got to, once we bridged, once we get, finally got to the point where this is the exciting part, okay? I know the rest is dark, but... Glory, glory, hallelujah, right? Um, so the fun part is that when we got to, um, when we un finally understood boundaries, we understood our roles in our relationship, the fun started. We started having loving conversations. She would call me to talk to me and I would listen within reason and I would not let her take my day with complaining, but I would support her within the realm of what felt right for me within my boundaries. That allowed my mom to show up no one understood what was happening. She was able to show up as a grandmother for the first time. She was able to, we took a 14 hour road trip to Disney, literally in the car with her and two kids that are different personalities and me, like sweating the whole time, hoping it all worked out. <laughs> but everyone told me I was crazy because they said mom has issues. And I said, well, I love mom and we have a solid relationship because of the boundaries and because of the work that we did, the forgiveness we worked through with each other. So we did a trip to, a trip to Disney that was like five days, uh, just my mom, myself and my daughters. Uh, then this past year, we did a trip to Atlanta to Six Flags and our relationship continues to transform. And she finally, sometimes he said people don't offer an apology. Mm -hmm. On the trip to Disney, my mom finally actually offered an authentic apology. And it was so strange, because it literally wasn't, I didn't feel what I thought I would feel, because I've wanted that my whole life. And she said, I'm so sorry for everything I put you through. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for saying you were ugly. I'm sorry for saying that you would never be a, a man that anyone wanted. She literally identified and named the things that she was sorry for, and it, I was happy to hear it, but I was more happy about the journey we were on. It felt better to have her sitting next to me listening to music and uh, dancing in a car. Um, can, you, can you go into a little bit about how, I mean, we're talking about forgiveness as a practice, right? not just something we do, just like an actual practice. How has practicing forgiveness, and it was years, right? Like it wasn't like 25 minutes later you guys had a relationship. So how has that changed you? The practice, the practice is a big deal because it doesn't happen overnight. 
It really doesn't. And even if someone says, I'm sorry, you, 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 you can forgive them, but it does not mean opening up and trusting again right away. Forgiveness is not a pass to come into your space again. For me, I'm weird. If someone tells me, if someone does something that's betrayal or hurtful, you know, I'm sorry to me means something completely different. You know, I'm sorry is admission that you've done something that's not conducive to the relationship we're building, but it's also an action. In the future, I will not do this particular behavior because I want a successful, healthy relationship with you. Um, you know, so that has started to transform me so that I understand that forgiveness is it, a step-by-step -step journey. It's a day-by-day -day journey. It's a conversation-by-conversation -conversation journey. And it's ultimately, like, one of the things you mentioned before was it's ultimately choosing to forgive and love yourself. Oh, which is yeah. what Jesus says, right? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's the biggest part because, you, you know, a lot of people, they have a, we all have different definitions of love. And like you said, when someone say, I'll be praying for you, that's scary. Yeah, that sounds like a threat to me. That can be, a, it depends on what they're praying for. That's it's, right, that's right, that's right. It's the same with love. You know, I don't want everyone to say I love you because for some people, I love you means do what I say and I might not hurt you. For some people, I love you means I own you. For some people, I love you means, you know, you need to do what I say or there's going to be consequences. For myself, I love you means that I am accepting you as you are for who you are, where you are, and without those expectations of you to perform for me. I'm allowing you to be free. Love is liberation. It's not controlling. It's not condemning someone based on what you think their idea of life needs to be. Um, and that's the most beautiful part of it is that my mom allowed me to show up and be loud and crazy and, and dance in a car and sing and do whatever I wanted as myself. I was able to show up, but I started to forgive myself for being imperfect because I always felt like I had to have an answer, had to have food, had to have money to pay the bills. I was a dad long before she was born. And I never had the chance to be a kid, which is why now I take every opportunity I can to be a kid. But um, Have you ever thought about being a preacher? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, more of a motivational speaker maybe, but not a life coach, yeah. You know, flosser, yeah. But, but not a preacher. Not a preacher, okay, just wondering. Uh, folks, can you thank Chris for being here? Um, so just a few things as we wrap up. I want to, just five points about forgiveness. First, for, forgiveness, I think it transforms us at a subatomic level. What I mean is we, we tend to focus on surface things, right? Like how people see us, how they perceive us. Do people see me like I want to be seen? Do I look like I'm put together and you know, all that? And what forgiveness does is it actually begins to go beneath that surface, that veneer that we try to protect, and it changes us at the molecular level. We become different kinds of human beings. Our capacity for love and generosity and compassion, kindness, all that stuff begins. Compassion is like a thing that develops in us. It grows like a fungus in us, right? Like, because we're actually doing something with it. Uh, two, forgiveness is a journey, not a 30-minute sitcom. Anybody else grow up in the 80s and 90s watching 30-minute sitcoms? I mean, I know those of you at the super exclusive young adult meetup didn't, but I'm asking about the rest of us. It's a joke. Any old people? in the room, watched 80s and 90s sitcoms. What happened no matter what? The show begins. Two minutes in, there's a major, major rift in conflict that seems like it cannot be overcome. 22 minutes later, they're all holding hands and singing. How did we get here? It created an expectation that forgive and forget is an actual thing. 
right? Which is not a thing. You can't just forget things. So forgiveness is a journey, and in Chris's story, it took years. And in some of our stories, it takes years and years and years, and we never get to the point with somebody that we want to get to. But yet, it's the journey, right? We're still on the journey. Uh, it doesn't always equal reconciliation, unfortunately. Anybody ever tried to forgive somebody and tried to reconcile, and that failed, and you ended up feeling guilty and shameful, like, why couldn't I make it work? Well, because it takes two in a relationship. Of course, you couldn't make it work. Somebody would have to meet you in a place that was safe for both of you. And so this idea that somehow, you know, if you forgive somebody, you should just be best friends again. Look, I think that boundaries are a gift. It may be that we say to some people, I'm going to forgive you from different zip codes, lose my phone number. Did you know Facebook has a block button? I've been handing those out like crazy. Like, you just can say, you don't get to be a part of my life. You don't get to speak into my life. Your opinion of who I am and the journey I'm on does not matter to me because you're not invested in my life, right? It's okay to have boundaries and say, if you're gonna use that language, if you're going to treat me that way, if you're going to threaten me, if you're going, like if this is what we're doing, then no, we're gonna do this from separate places. I'm going to do the journey of forgiveness, uh, but I'm not gonna be able to do it in proximity to you. Right? There's power in being able to own your space like that and say, you can't bring that here. Um, ultimately, forgiveness is about the forgiver and the forgiven. I think we often think about the person being forgiven, but we don't talk enough about what forgiveness does for the forgiver. Anybody have anybody living in their head rent-free? That's a thing, right? Where you're constantly mulling over that dialogue, that conversation, that thing, and they're over like just enjoying their life, doing their thing, and they have no idea that they're like, eating you alive and they're going on as if everything's normal. Forgiveness allows us as forgivers to begin to let go of them. Actually, the word in the New Testament that gets translated forgiven means to send away. It means I'm not going to, I'm not going to make you pay. It doesn't mean that what you did was okay. It doesn't mean that if there are legal consequences that you don't have to face those consequences because you do. But what it means is I'm not packing you around with me everywhere I go anymore. I'm going to enter into this journey as a forgiver that will not only let you go, but it lets me off the hook too. I'm no longer going to be living, replaying, re-engaging. And look, again, it happens. I, I forgive some people every day of my life, sometimes twice a day, right? So it's not that it's just this moment and then you get over it. It's this continual decision not to let them have control of your life and who, of who you are and not let them name who you are and what you're worth. Lastly, forgiveness is about bringing a, a whole new world into being. You know, I love in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as, it, as it is in heaven. John Dominic Crossan always says about that, he says that heaven's in great shape, earth is where the problems are. And I think we read that prayer of Jesus and we read it like, oh God, bring, bring it down, like drop it on us. And I wonder if while we've been waiting for God, God has perhaps been waiting for us. Perhaps that's not something God's going to do for us, it's something God's going to do with us. God will only transform the world when we show up and we're willing to be the people through whom the world gets transformed. There's a new world waiting to be born. Sometimes I see people do good and beautiful things and I can get so lost in the muck and mire and the hatefulness and all that stuff and then I see a real living, breathing human being in the wild doing something good for somebody else. I'm like, oh, it's not lost. We've still got a shot. 
this kingdom thing on earth as it is in heaven could still happen if we show up, if we seek to keep short accounts, if we refuse to let the past determine the future. I mean, we're in an era right now in our society where there's a lot to be forgiven. And we all generally want to wait for the other person to make the first step. And by first step, I don't mean step toward them in a place that's unsafe for you, but I mean the step in your heart of deciding that beginning now, for however long it takes, for however long I live, I'm not going to let them and the pain and the hurt and the anger define my life. I'm not gonna walk around with adrenaline and cortisol racing through my veins at all times. I'm going to step back and I'm going to enter into this journey. And some days will be great and some days won't be. Some days you'll forgive easily and some days it'll feel like a death. And this is the journey. This is the Christian story, right? Death gives way to life. Something new is being born and we get to be a part of it. I wanna invite our band to come on back up. Um, we're gonna lead us in one final song before we go. Um, and as they're coming, I just wanna create a, for a minute or so, just a quiet space. I know that when we start talking about things like forgiveness, forgiveness implies something's happened. And so for lots of us in this room, lots of things may be going through our minds right now and through our hearts and we may be thinking about all sorts of things. So I wanna give us just a minute to process that. If you're a person who talks to God, maybe this would be one of those moments where you would maybe wanna do that. Um, when I say, Think of somebody who's hurt you. I don't know about you, but I've got a list at the ready. And I can give you some of their mailing addresses. Um, like, it's that, r that right there. Um, what would it look like to choose to begin a journey of forgiveness? Of saying, what they did is not okay. It is not justified. It is not going to happen. Again, I'm putting a boundary in place, but it's also not going to, it's also not going to define me, and it's not going to shape my other relationships, the healthy ones that I'm giving my time, energy, and life to. So let's just create a moment together. Uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll sing. God, we know that you're big enough to hold every hurt, expansive enough to meet us even in our pain. And so for the wounds and the scars that we carry, for the people who inflicted them upon us, today we, we ask you for the strength and the courage to step into a process. Whether we ever tell them, whether they ever know, whether we ever see them again, we do not want to be owned by people who have wounded us. So whatever that journey looks like for us in a healthy, safe way, <clears throat> however that might shape our lives on this path of transformation, we are open and ready. May we know in this community that no one laughs alone and no one weeps alone, that we carry these things together. So give us the courage even if it's just in the quiet of this moment to say, I want to forgive. And maybe for some of us it will begin when we muster the courage to begin to forgive ourselves. Because our ability to love our neighbor is deeply interconnected with our ability to love ourselves. 
is so hard to love our enemies when we have so much unresolved anger. So guide us on this path. Transform us on this path. Heal us on this path. And may we look back on this morning and this gathering as a significant moment on our journey for some of us of stepping into and beginning this journey of forgiveness. We love you. We're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.